Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, past winners, and a few surprise guests. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Bill Fawcett. Now, for those of you who don't know, after writing for the early issues of Dragon Magazine in the 1970s, Bill became one of the founders of and lead designer at Mayfair Games. He's continued his board and electronic game design work, including a number of RPGs and PC games. His historical mistakes series include It Seemed Like a Good Idea, It Looked Good on Paper, and You Did What, How to Lose a Battle, and several more great books. His nonfiction books are Oval Office Oddities, 100 Mistakes That Change History, 100 Leadership Mistakes That Change History, and 101 Stumbles in the March of History. As an author, Bill has written and co-authored over a dozen fiction books, plus close to 100 articles and short stories. He collaborated on several mystery novels with Chelsea Quinn Yarborough, including the authorized Mycroft Holmes novels. He interviewed for and edited two oral histories of the U.S. Navy SEALs, Hunters and Shooters, and The Teens. As an anthologist, edited or co-edited over 40 SF anthologies. Bill Fawcett and Associates has packaged over 400 books, science fiction, fantasy, military, nonfiction, and licensed books for major publishers. So welcome very much, Bill Fawcett. Thank you, John. So we originally met at DragonCon some, some years ago, and we built an immediate good friendship, and it's been that since. So, Well, thank you. I guess the, the thing that we have in common is, is you know, the desire to be able to help the aspiring writer. So how did you get involved, first of all, in the whole publishing world, and kind of like where do you see it's going right now? Boy, that second's a really big question. To give you the sharp version of the first, I started in gaming and writing game modules and writing background material for games. Um, I started, of course, writing the uh, center section of the dragon in the first 40-some issues and uh, creating things like Chosen Path Adventures for them. Eventually, when I after I moved to Mayfair, I edited and ran the fantasy line of modules called Rollades. Uh, we were drunk when we thought of that name. <laughs> I'll admit it. And I'm the only one left alive. And um, we began distributing through Berkeley Publishing. And Berkeley, I was liaison because I was running sales, uh, running sales. There were four of us. Yeah. That. And I handled all the sales and liaison and went to New York. And uh, got to know the people there. And eventually, um, Susan Allison, the uh, Times uh, senior editor at Ace, uh, she retired executive vice president of paperbacks, uh, tripped me into starting writing for them. And that's what you've been doing since. And ever since. One way or another, I've been involved. I stayed with Mayfair part of the most of the rest of the decade and then uh, went full time into publishing, packaging, which is it's a strange name. It doesn't mean I put books in boxes. It means that I create a series, I sell it to a publisher, I hire the writers, I edit the content, I turn it over to them for copy editing and printing. So I was sort of a auxiliary editor, which they don't really need anymore because they're doing so few books. That gets on to your next question. Right. For three decades for most of the major New York publishers. Okay. So now... Just in general, then, that second question, second part of the question, then, so what do you see as a future publishing 
at this point? I mean, we've got, we broke it down. You got self-publishing versus going through your publisher, the use of editors, you know, so we can break it down. But as an overall thing, what do you see as the future of, of publishing? Because people aren't going to stop reading. Well, perhaps a little historical uh, perspective first, John. I have read about or been around for at least for the entire collapse of publishing and the end of it as we know it, according to the press or the pundits. Uh, starting with the paperback book in the 50s when Pocket brought out the Pocket Book, the paperback book as we now call it, and this was the end of publishing as the world knew it. It was done. It was over. No one could afford to do a good book. Writers would all starve. Um, actually, I read, read an article in Reader's Digest from 1934 that when they dropped the royalty from 25 to 20% for hardcovers uh, for writers, that it would end intellectual writing as we know it. Um, maybe he was right. Anyhow, um, <laughs> moving on, you, you, I, I saw the same thing happen uh, with the first electronic books and the idea of e-books. I saw it happen when the stores began to fade and Amazon came and that was the end of publishing as we know it and the end of the bookstores and things would go in the end of the independent science fiction bookstore, which, by the way, is having a major resurgence. And every one of them was absolutely wrong, but they were a point of evolution in the market, in the marketing, and in the distribution of the books. The main side effect each of these has had is every time the industry shakes up, the successful and larger and better finance publishers seem to absorb all the small ones. Right. When I started in science fiction, there were 22 different companies in New York putting up science fiction books, and you could sell a book to any of them, and they weren't all owned by one company. Today, there are five, and basically, that's it. Um, and that's that's not even uh, adding in Bain uh, as part of Simon and Schuster, which makes it four and a half. <laughs> so it, it 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 has had the changes of each each earthquake in his industry has settled it a little more. But of course, there's been a dramatic reaction to that now, which is probably the most important thing to talk about when you talk about the future, and that is. As the big presses move up, when I was first involved in the 80s, they were putting about 70 books, science fiction books a month out from different publishers. Bain did five, Ace did five, Tor did six, Rock did three. There were multiple lists out there, some from companies that no longer do, do books or science fiction books. And so by the uh, end of the 80s, there were about 120 books from major publishers that were science fiction or fantasy coming out every month, not counting your Stephen King bestseller kind of thing, which was separate. Right. And today, there's maybe 60. It has so gone about way half. The, it, it is cut, cut in half. The, the tour list is down. The rack list is one or two books. Del Rey is basically rolled into Random House, and they're doing half a dozen books at most instead of the 10 they were, sometimes 12. Dog Books is still there doing their thing, bless them, and so is Bain with full lists, but they're not the only two that are. And Dog is owned, uh, is basically has a, a, a very deep agreement with Berkeley Random House. 
so they don't count as an independent. Um, and so as a result, there has been less places to do books and more pressure to make the same amount of money on less books, which means that an editor has to look at a book and in order to sell it to the publishing company, has to say, this book has the potential to be a breakout, a bestseller. By the third book, this guy's going to be at the top of the market making us a ton of money, or they don't want to publish it. And that also comes from the way books are now decided on, which has dramatically changed over time. Ask me about that in a minute, and I'll explain sure. what happened to books at major publishers. Um, but basically, as a result, there's no new writers, relatively few new writers getting in. And what used to be 25 years ago, the independent publisher was what you did when you couldn't do anything else. We have seen a rise of people picking up excellent books and publishing companies like Wordfire, Prince of Cats, and others uh, for Horsemen that are putting out 50, 100, 120 books a year and are considered small presses by today's standards, I guess they are. And as a result, there has been a rise of independent publication. And I saw a SUFWA, Science Fiction Writers of America, if you're not one and you're a writer of SF, you should be a member, research they did a few years ago. And at the time, I believe this was 2016 or 17, perhaps, and about 55% of all the science fiction books published are and by independent publishers, and about 45% of all the money spent on science fiction books are going to independent publishers. Now, you notice they're not the same number. It pays better. They make a little more money at the publishing houses. Why? Because we trust their books sometimes better. And so the independent movement in the industry has made an amazing and overwhelming difference. And the other thing that has shaken the industry and pressed it together, of course, is Amazon. And that's had a real two-edged sword. They have been abusive. They have been aggressive. They have also given a market ability to small publishing companies that otherwise wouldn't have happened and wouldn't be there. They are an outlet. So this is sort of like the company you love to hate but have to need for independent publishing. Um, right. Except Audible, who we're all mad at. <laughs> so, okay. So then on the, uh, you may mention like, um, we'll get back to this later, remind you of this on the, I guess on new books being selected. Oh, how the process. And then I'll yeah. actually, then I'll actually answer your question, which I haven't yet. I know. Uh, where it's going. I thought I did really well. Very political. Yes. Um, all right. Um, when your book goes to a publisher, your editor is your friend. Your editor is the person who wants to sell the book. They have to take it to what is now a buying an editorial committee. It does not consist of editors. There will be eight to 12 people in the room from accounting and sales and administration and production and um, corporate of various levels and other editors who also want their books bought instead of yours. And you present a book and maybe one or two people who have been editors 
make a decision, present it. And then people who often have never read a book in that department will make a decision on a purely business level as to whether this is a book they think they should do. And the better your editor is at selling them, the more books they will get to publish and the more your book will get done. But it's now done by a committee that is made up of publishing bureaucrats. Now, they have the best intentions for publishing in mind and they have to keep the doors open. But it means that probably there's less chance taking now than there's ever been in the history of publishing. And the marketing department often drives the meeting. Got it. Now, this is with the publishers themselves. What about now on the subject of a person wanting to take the self-publishing route? You know, so there's definite do's and don'ts. Yeah, there's a whole lot of do's and don'ts. But what that that is, as you said, part of the future. What yeah. has happened is that we have had a fragmented uh, industry because people for the first time i watched us go from where only a publisher could get books in front of people to where amazon could get books in front of people to where people could get books to amazon from small presses or other ways and get them in front of people and actually sell some of their books and some people have gone on to do that um one author from uh, bain sometimes controversial larry korea was approached by Bain Books to start doing books for them when his books started selling 100,000 copies as an independent author on Amazon. That'll get their attention. And um, he's been moving up ever since. I think he's at 11 New York Times bestsellers now. Yeah. Anyhow, um, the result is that there is more opportunity out there than ever. It happened in the game world when apps first started coming out and you could do an app in your garage, and there were thousands and thousands of apps all the way, and Android and Apple would sell them for you, taking a big cut. And now we're hitting a similar situation in publishing and a similar problem. And the problem is determining the wheat from the chaff, the good books from the, they simply wrote that many words, perhaps not very well, and determining which is which before you buy the book. And that's the one thing that keeps the heritage publishers going is the fact that you know that they have screened and screened and screened and checked on the book. And what the book you get may not be a topic you like, you may not enjoy the writer, but it will be a quality book if it's from a major publisher. And you don't know what you're getting from an independent or even a small publisher or a self-published book. So this is the next big challenge, I think, for the industry. Now, if you wanted to go out and do, do self-publishing, first of all, consider whether you want to really learn an entire industry and business and spend half your day marketing. If that isn't the case, I recommend you find a small publisher, not do it yourself, just as if I made, if I made chairs, I could sell a few chairs by advertising on eBay, or I could supply somebody in sell as many chairs as I had. Look to a small publisher. There are publishers out there that will give you a 50-50 cut after the cost of printing the book or after after a very small expense allocation. 
as opposed to an eight to fifteen percent cut from a major publisher. It won't. They won't make you as famous. They don't have as much distribution. You won't be in every bookstore. You remember those bookstores? Sometimes they still have a few, and as a result. You'll, you'll retain many of the advantages of self-publishing if you can get a small publisher to publish it. The dark side of that, of course, is you've got to get a small publisher to publish it, which means you have to interest them in the book and explain to them that this book is worth publishing. And at that point, they will put it out and you have a little of the benefits of both, really. And that's the important part. So you've got the question of not only what you want to do, but also um, whether you want to learn to do a whole thing. I am 45 years in the industry, and I do not consider myself the expert on anything, but particularly production and marketing rather than creation and editing. Um, have been new challenges for a decade for me. I've learned a lot, mostly through mistakes. Do you really want to go through that process? If you don't believe in your book that much, or if you don't think you can deal with it, then don't. Um, but if you if you want to concentrate on being a writer, find a small publisher. There's dozens of good ones out there now. Which leads to the question, how do you find a small publisher? Well, there's a couple of ways. One of them is once we go back to having science fiction conventions, you remember those, um, we will, you can go to any of the major booksellers, the Seattle Science Fiction books, and they'll have books from small publishers. The small publishers themselves will be at many of these, and it gives you an opportunity to meet and smooth with them and talk about your book. Do not bring a manuscript. That's tacky. Tell them about it. Send it to them electronically later. I still praise the day we no longer get paper manuscripts. I, used to, I can remember having one slid under the door in a bathroom once. <laughs> <laughs> Want to look at this bill? It's this, huh? huh? It was appropriate when I read it. Anyhow, um, so if you're going to, if you want to go the indie route, do it, but there are levels of indie. And unless you're good at marketing and like handling book work and like shipping books, think about what will happen if your book is a success and you have to ship 3,000 of them to 3,000 people. Okay, that's good. Now, what about the, the, you might have a great story, but then the whole role of the editor, like if you don't have the big, the big five, or even if you don't have another uh, publisher who's part of the packages, an editor will go through and work with you on the book. What about getting independent editors to be able to work with you to put together a, um, a sellable or, or marketable book? An honest independent editor is a tremendous benefit for a new writer because they effect will educate you as well. You will see what they suggest, you'll see what they change, and it will help you. A professional editor is a big help to everyone. I, I, I was tremendously helped by my initial editors, for whom I have always been grateful. They taught me a lot. They corrected me a lot. They embarrassed me into doing things correctly a lot. Uh, they taught me what a comma is. They, <laughs> the first year I was writing for Ace, after um, Susan got me doing the young adults forum, my editor there, I think it was Beth Meacham, um, 
sent me a spell check for my apple for Christmas. And I learned <laughs> from that. <laughs> um, it's the yeah, little things in life. The little things. Yeah. The little hints, you know? Yes. When, when your wife puts out three deodorants in three rooms, you know. <laughs> and, and so, um, yes. And now a warning there. There are scam companies that will edit your book. Do, first of all, anyone who says that they want money to publish your book at all, unless it's you're a partner in the publishing house, is probably a scam. Now, there are minor exceptions, but they don't normally ask for money in front. They take it out of the initial royalties of the book. They have, say, Wordfire Press. I think they take a $300 charge out of the first royalties to cover certain expenses because they do a straight 50-50 split effectively. Right. <clears throat> I think so, it's a really important datum, too, that people understand. Like if you're paying for it up front, it's most probably not worth your effort. It's a scam. It is yeah. dubious at best and most likely bad. Now, what you can pay for and do is get a book editor, doctor, uh, someone who's going to look at your book and give you suggestions and critiques. Now, there's really two ways to approach that. There are a number of excellent professionals out there, enough that I won't won't mention any specifically for this podcast because they get swamped and others would be weighted, wasted. But there, there are dozens of them. How do you find them? Talk to people who are already publishing and see if they know of them. All of us do. Okay. Or just talk around at a con, but get one that you can get a reputation on. And they will charge you anywhere from 300 to a couple thousand dollars, depending on what you want, what you do, and who they are. Generally, it's three to six, seven hundred uh, dollars to go over your book and mark things that this makes no sense, this is wrong, this is inconsistent. They're not doing a copy edit. They're not doing a consistency edit. They're, they're doing a, a edit of it. For a slightly greater amount, if you've written a book, you can get a book doctor. There are a lot of people out there who will take your book and rewrite it and let you leave your name on it. They run anywhere from two to 5,000, sometimes 10, depending on what you're doing, or if you're a big-name politician. Do you really think any of those big-name politicians wrote all those books they were supposed to? Not since John Kennedy didn't write uh, Profiles and Courage. They haven't. Um so you can find one of those. Another route to take on this is also to improve your writing and get a feedback is go to a writing workshop. Go to one that is writing oriented, not marketing oriented. There are some excellent marketing oriented ones that are done in various things. Superstars is one. Um, but like uh, there are writing workshops at most of the major conventions where you'll pay anywhere from 300 to $400. And what you get is to submit the first chapters of your book and a professional will mark them up and critique them in front of others and teach you all what should be done and how it should be, how to make the first paragraph work to grab the reader, et cetera. And that's so, one that your, your wife runs. Jody runs at uh, DragonCon. It's been very successful. Yes. She runs one at DragonCon and there are, about a dozen other major conventions that have excellent ones. And there are also private ones that you can find people who will just run them for a little more money. And you may even just end up staying at a B&B or something. And those can be a great way that if you don't want to spend the money to get your whole book 
looked over, but you want to see if you if, if you you want to improve your game and move forward. And the nice advantage of those is you can always go back another year and go back with the better stuff and show how you've changed and improved, which I have someone who reads some of hers. I have seen some writers that went to my wife, Jody Lynn Nyes at DragonCon and uh, are one of them, I had another company. I ended up editing him professionally for another publisher. Um, he had made it and just sold his sixth book to a publisher. And I edited his last three book series. And he they were good books. And he'd started a little rough. And by the time he'd done two sessions, he'd figured out what he wanted to do. And the talent came through. So that's another approach besides just paying someone to edit and give you advice. Another one is to have readers who you respect and ask them. The hardest problem with readers is they will care about your feelings. And so they may not tell you just how bad some of the dreck is. And I don't mean if you're a new writer, I, my readers sometimes say um, very gentle words to me that basically translate this chapter shouldn't even be in the book. Mm. Okay. Now, when we originally met, it was on the, the whole subject matter of Writers of the Future. That was a competition created by Erwin Hubbard in 83, which is now in its 38th year. So any comments on the value of that? We, we're up to now a couple thousand entries per quarter now from literally almost every country around the world that's entering that has English speaking in an illustrator contest, just almost every country. So any comments about that with respect to... Um, its value to science fiction and fantasy. Oh, if you read your winner's list, it is science fiction and fantasy. You've got about half of the best-selling authors out there and most many of the other talented ones who've come up through it. It provides something that wasn't available and that it was founded to solve a major problem 38 years, well, 40, 45 years ago, and that was there was no way to get up and get recognized and get trained if you had the outstanding talent. It was seat of the pants. It was hit or miss. And a brilliant writer could go nowhere and fall off simply because there was no one to say, hey, you're a brilliant writer. And I can remember when it was hundreds of entries when I first started working and talking with you. And I have to compliment you and, and the staff and, of course, the founding vision, all for uh, the amazing success there. Enough compliments. It's a practically good idea. It allows a market. It allows people to, to write and get recognized for it. It allows them to get a credit before they are a published author in many cases. And even semi-finaling or even just getting a letter back can inspire someone to try again. Wasn't it Eric Flint who said it took him three or four times before he, he even got into the finals? Yeah, he was several entries, and Kevin entered 17 times and actually never uh, won. I mean, he got, I think, some honorable mentions, but he he proed out oh, after, Kevin was, yeah, after yeah. 17 or so entries. He never won, but now he's a judge. Yeah, same thing with Rob Sawyer. He he entered uh, several times at the beginning of his career. Brandon Sanderson entered the contest. Um, um, Joe Black entered. He was a finalist. It's amazing talking to people how many have actually entered the uh, competition and either made as a finalist or 
you know, several of our of our current judges were winners way back when, like Dave Farlin or Eric Flint now being a judge. Um, Nettie Akorafor is a judge now. So we, we've got several, but it's it's just something I think is, you know, your opinion on, and your comments on it and value because part of what I try to accomplish with this podcast is get people to enter the competition. It's, it's very easy to, it's free to enter. And it's open to anybody who's not professional. And um, we also recently created at the beginning of the pandemic, the Elrond Hubbard uh, Creative Writing uh, Online Course, which has now almost got 5,000 people on it and um, about 500 have completed so far. So the whole purpose of what Mr. Hubbard created was you know, to provide that launch pad. Again, your experience, because I was just reading your bio to be at the opening of this of this interview, this is what you do. You know, so your comments are very much appreciated, and um, I look forward to anything else you have to say about this. Well, you, the Writers of the Future was the first of the open, unbiased, not from a publisher who only wanted to promote their books, recognition for writers. We had the Hugos, we have the Nebulas back before then, but there was nowhere for a new writer coming up to get in because both of those you had to be recognized enough to get a nomination. And it actually was the only lighthouse in the on the ocean for quite a while. Now, we're most recently, along with the indie movement, we've had a move towards populist things such as the Dragon Awards and awards given at, at Gen Con and stuff that uh, become um, more open than and are open to everyone to vote or open for being judged It's by no matter who you are. And um, by the way, though, there's a new uh, award that just started. Anyone can be nominated for, John. The Resnick Award is being sponsored by Galaxy's Edge magazine, and it's for uh, new novelists. And so that's also out there. But what, what, what Writers of the Future started and carried for a long time and now is being carried on with them, with others, and still leads the pack in many ways, is a populist movement of you don't have to be a public, have to deal and be a dolly, be a darling of a publisher to get recognized for your skill and be recognized as what you are. And what that means is anybody can be president, anybody can be a baseball star, go play Little League, anybody can if they have the talent and the determination and the willingness to set 80 hours a week can be a writer. And if you're good, you can enter writers of the future and there's a very good chance you'll get recognized. I've, I've had the opportunity to read submissions and finalists and stuff. And they, there's a tremendous amount of thought going into looking at every story. Um, poor David and some others actually must be mind drained by the end of the season, every quarter. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 part of what has now become almost a revolution in science fiction, where it's being returned to the readers and writers' hands. Good, and then on the one of the things that we also have is the illustrators of the future contests, and I know that that's something that back in the pulps, the illustrations really a, an integral part of the pulp magazines themselves, whether it's the cover image or the black and whites inside the, the stories. Um, I think this is probably the only, Rise of the Future is the only anthology that has a beautiful, not just black and white, but a color illustration for every story in the book. 
I have admired your courage for founding that ever since it was. By the way, you have some of the best artists in the industry as judges. Um, I've known many of them, some of them with 30, 40 years of doing things, some of whom basically made D&D with their covers. Yeah. And, and um, I would say, like the writers, it's you know, it hasn't been around as long. And again, it's it's a place where you can get recognition without having to be a sell, sold things to someone that will distribute it widely. You can get recognition and a recognition that means something because if you tell a publisher you're a writers of the future finalist or an illustrator of the future finalist, they pay attention to it. It's got that much reputation because they know you've basically gone through a filter of the top talent in the country and they think you're good. It's almost as good as a recommendation from a writer they publish. Thanks. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one thing we've noticed too. I see more and more in, in um, press releases coming out from new writers or artists that they were a finalist or an honorable mention in the, in the competition as, as part of their um, credits. So it's, you know you made it on a resume. Yeah, exactly. So now on the um, the subject self of of why should somebody enter Writers of the Future? I mean, we're gonna, I've got a few other things I want to go over, but just to finish off from Writers of the Future, why should somebody enter the, the competition? Because um, it's a short story, and if you want to be a novelist but not a short story writer, anything about that? Well... First of all, there, the, the question should be phrased, if you want to be a writer, there's a free place to get recognized that costs you a stamp to enter. Well, two stamps, because you're going to write five to 7,000 words. But now you can, even up, you can even electronic upload it on writersofthefuture.com. Nothing to enter. Yeah. And boy, did I just show how old-fashioned I am, John? And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're looking at, something that is, has a potential, even a slight potential, for national recognition, why wouldn't you submit to Writers of the Future? Even getting an honorable mention will tell you that you're going in the right direction, and not getting it just means that you are different from the 10,000 people that sent it in, and they can't recognize every one. There's a lot of talent out there. So the downside is minimal. The upside is incredibly good for both your morale and your career, and it gets you to write. And it gets you to write for someone on the outside, and it might make you make a little extra effort, too. And that's another benefit of writing for Writers of the Future contest or illustrators sending a portfolio into illustrators is it, it makes you hone your game a little because you're going to be real. You're doing something real, and it allows someone who hasn't been to become real. And eventually they grow up and be Brandon Sanderson. Yeah, and that's, that's actually a, a, a point I'm glad that you brought up. I was hoping you'd go that direction because a writer writes. And one of the things that Kevin Anderson commented on earlier on was that the quarterly deadlines forced him to write a story every quarter. And actually many of our winners, they helped develop a, a discipline to create a story and finish it and get it in by the deadline, which is an important ability to have on, on writing. It's also an important ability for illustrators too. That's one of the things that Bob Eggleton said that his, is his claim to his success is that he always made a deadline. 
Kevin Anderson always made a deadline. Dean Wesley Smith always made a deadline. And so publishers would go to them for the person I was working on this. They just totally, you know, bombed on me. Can you please help me? And they'll say yes, and they'll deliver. And so he said that's something that they got from the competition, learning how to write to, uh, to deadlines. Yeah, and to, to, to look at your story and say, is this a story that could be win, could win, that should be submitted? And it make, makes you become a stronger judge of your own writing. And by that very statement, makes you a better writer as you improve it. And writing's a technical skill. The more you work at it, the more you learn about it. You can make the same mistake over and over, or you can keep learning and get better. And after 40 years, I'm still learning a lot. I remember Harlan Ellison saying that about uh, five years before he died, we were at a convention, and he, Harlan said, uh, you know, sometimes I think they're, they're going to find out I'm, I'm still learning and faking it and take all my awards away. Um, because you never stop learning how to write and how to tell a story and how to do the technical skill of writing. And if you can do it, take your game and up it for the um, submission to Writers of the Future, then Writers of the Future has inspired you to be a better writer. And that's what it does with a lot of people. You have to meet a deadline. You have to put in quality. You have to get the spelling right, personal flaw. You have to put commas in the right places so that you look and it reads professionally. And it teaches you to polish for submission. And that alone is worth doing it. Exactly. And the um, I think the one thing, too, with, with, the, uh, with Writers of the Future is because on writersoffuture.com we've got a forum there's the online workshop there's the um the uh, blog that we're you know doing right now and then there's um there's lots or excuse me we're doing the podcast right now then we have the blog we have so many different opportunities for people to meet and engage with other writers the forum has hundreds of people constantly on the forum and we've got past winners who help uh, moderate it and it's it's open to everybody, and that's that's one thing too about the about writers of the future, no stories of the future. There's no judging on who you are or anything else. It's, it's strictly on the quality and merit of your work alone. So it doesn't matter if you're male, female, what nationality, what sexual preference, anything at all. It's just are you a good author? Are you a good artist? And if so, you'll be recognized as such. And that's what we're into celebration. And we've been doing that. Like I said, we're about ready to come up with volume 37 this coming year, but we're already into the competition for year 38 now. So it's, I think it's something that's really important. And it's been that way for as a competition itself. So automatically, by the very nature that it's blind judging, it, it levels the playing field. And there is no predetermined ideas what is or isn't good. You know, like we've got winners in our 60s. And I know that the big publishers won't necessarily go after somebody of that age because they want to build up and and turn it into an income source. What's maybe three after the third or fourth novel, it really really goes, and that's going to be three four years. So they're not necessarily interested in someone who's older. But with Rise of Future, it's just about are you a good writer? Are you a good illustrator? And recognizing that several people with a second careers wanting to be a, a writer are being able to experience that and um, and celebrate their their desires. Absolutely. And if, if, as we're wrapping this, I do want to give the writers for one piece of advice I've gotten. I'm not a judge, but I've talked to many of them and I've seen it done. Um, 
write your best story. Don't try and write something unique to stand out and impress them with the idea. Impress them with how well you write the idea. That's what wins. You don't need to be different. You just need to be really good at writing your story. That's great. Now, there is one last area I wanted to be able to touch on with you, and that's in the area of do's and don'ts on um, making your way into publishing. We are going to be getting back into conventions, and there's definitely do's and don'ts there. Like you said, you don't slide a manuscript under the bathroom door. Um, but other things that you could suggest that are, do, that are good do's and don'ts to be able to make your introduction into the world of publishing and including like the importance of social uh, involvement in social media and having those types of connections and um, how, how forceful can you be in, um, in your encounters with others? All right. Well, each one of those has, each area there has its own pitfalls and advantages. And uh, part of that's tied up with the question I said I would answer, and I'll try and give you a short version of now, which is where is publishing going? Publishing is spreading out. Publishing is going to have more publishers, not less, because we've got many little ones. More people are going to be able to write. Somewhere out there, we will evolve a method of finding out which of the independent books and self-published books are good or not, and people can find them. Eventually, that something will evolve because the need's so great. And so when you fall, go into this, the first thing you, you might want to keep in mind is don't come in with a preconceived concept of how you're going to do something, how you're going to sell your book, how you're going to market your book. Look at what's being done successfully and go from them because what will work when 10 years ago won't work now and what worked 40 years ago isn't even conceivable now because the structure of distribution has completely changed. It's more electric. We now have, there are more ebooks sold than, than printed books by a significant factor. So you've got to, first of all, get rid of your preconceptions, especially if you're older, because what you know probably doesn't apply anymore. He says, because he's run into it many times in his life, as the world changed under my feet. Now, what you don't want to do is a number of things. First of all, you want to finish your book. Then you want to go over it and make sure that it's grammatically correct, it's smooth, it's nothing, that the format's fine, that it's readable, and that other people can read it and make it basically the best book you can, but don't go over it too many times. Electronically, it's really easy to revise and rewrite and revise and rewrite. I know someone who worked on a book for 11 years because it was safer than sending it to somebody and he didn't have to worry about doing another one. So he rewrote the same book time after time. Eventually it was so stale, it was old toast and nobody wanted to look at it. So that's a pitfall you can fall when you first get into it or when you're afraid to, it, it gives you an out that you shouldn't take. Do one or two revisions, not extensive after the second one and go from there. Make it a book or write another one. The second thing is look at how you want to have it published and then talk to other authors. You can find them online. It used to be you had to find someone at a con. Now you can go up on somebody. Every author has his Facebook page, his Twitter page, his TikTok page or whatever, and a whole bunch of other words I can barely pronounce pages, and but not parlor anymore. And you can um, find the author. Uh, a writer you like and ask them advice. We're 
a big pie, bigger pie community. Writers like helping other writers. Writers talk to other writers. We all teach. We all give free panels on how to write at every convention. We encourage others. I have looked at manuscripts. I don't do that now. Thank you. Don't send any. I have looked at manuscripts for writers I'm working with and make suggestions for new writers. We teach workshops. So find a writer and talk to them who writes something like you do and see what they do, see who they sell to, see who you should be published by. Don't just go to a random publisher because they're at a convention. You want to see who you should be published by. Look up on the internet or in stores who writes books like you, What who publishes books like you write. The backside of that is you're going to write like what you read. So if your shelf is full of Tor books, you're probably a Tor writer. If your shelf is full of Bain books, you're probably not a Tor writer. You're a Bain writer. And that doesn't mean they aren't interchangeable, but that's where your style will sort of push you. So don't try and push your book in a place that isn't appropriate. I can't tell you how many people sent books that to publishers I've worked with, small publishers, that they simply couldn't print no matter what they were because they weren't on the type of book that that publisher does. So that's another problem. Don't forget to promote yourself. You don't have to be a nut, but you've got to promote yourself. And the worst thing you can do promoting yourself is say things to attract attention that antagonize people because you get lots of hits or lots of passing on or whatever you want to call it in in each division. Um, Because a bad reputation can follow you. And it will, in the long run, cost your readers. It will also affect your ability to be a guest at conventions. So avoid the political, avoid the outrageous, avoid attacking other people, either for what they are or what they do. And instead, accentuate the positive, the books, the the good things about your, ask questions about writing. Sound sincere and real And don't try and be something you're not online. Don't try and impress people with extreme statements. And you'll do much better a year later than the people who do, who you will not hear of a year later. Right. Okay, that helps. Now, on the subject of um, you've gotten yourself a, a book published, but there's this thing called foreign rights. And normally a publisher will handle that, but... Is there any direction or tips on what an author can do to uh, shop his book around? Um, I remember you having several conversations with uh, Mike Resnick when he was still with us um, about he sold so many of his books in in other languages. Yes, there, there are a number of approaches to that. Assuming you're not with a major publisher, there you may or may not have foreign rights uh, representatives doing it. And you don't always even want to give the major publisher foreign rights. Their track record is not one of brilliance um, in doing it, and you have to split with them. What I One of the things is, if your publisher is not aware of it and they're a small publisher, there are agents who will represent small presses selling foreign rights from those presses who have connections all over. Now, how that structures is there's normally a U.S. agent who takes 10% and a foreign agent who takes 10%. So you pay at least a 20% royalty. It can go to 30 on a foreign book. And there's also a concern with, with taxes in certain countries. But the way to do it is to see if who publishers are you. There are small publishers who can find these agents. 
The next step is once you've gotten some books out and they're successful enough that someone in another country might look at them and want to publish them, then you're probably ready to get an agent. And every professional agent has a foreign representative in almost every country. There are, in fact, consortiums of foreign agents that you can that get together, and there's one in each country. Almost everybody uses the same guy in Moscow, Alexander Kurzhenevsky, if he's still working at it. I haven't talked to him lately. And that's because he was one of the few people who could work through the system there. He'd been doing it for forever. So you want to get to a, get an agent at some point. A good reason to get an agent is for foreign rights along with sell, having your contract looked at and selling your next book. So never underestimate that value. It's probably the primary way that those books got placed for Mike and many of us. Okay, that's good. That's good to know in that. So do you feel like you've answered that first question, which I asked, open with, that wasn't really addressed <laughs> up until recently? The, the future of the industry? Yes. Well, that involves a, a number of things. First of all, more independent publishing. Second of all, the nature of the book itself is changing and evolving. And there are books out there that have cutscenes from actors in them, ebooks. There are audio tried to pull a stunt, but you can you can get certain publicate certain things where you can get both the book and the audio. Unfortunately, Audible did that in a somewhat uh, scurrilous manner, and we had to stop them. Yeah, that got but, stopped though. Oh yes, fortunately. What they, tried, what they tried to do was run your entire book under the text, under the under the Audible on your on the Audible app. And of course, they don't have the rights to show your entire book, right? And for people to read along with, uh, it was claiming the print rights effectively without paying for them. But there are certain things that work with that. There are things that can be done to a book that allow the book to the, when you get to a certain point access other material and background. A lot of writers now are putting their background material up and putting notices at the end of their ebook saying, if you want to learn more about the world of Epicuria, go to this site. And there's a whole, and it's a great way to make use of all that world creation and background site that you're not supposed to put in the book. It's just supposed to be the background. <laughs> and make use of it as a promotional material. So there's a lot of crossover there. And today, more than ever, because we've won, I mean, when I was in my, my teens in the 60s and a young man in the 70s and a hardcore science fiction fan, we were a laughed at minority and Star Trek was an anomaly and Lost in Space was about as high browed as it got. And Doctor Who, of course, the Doctor, Baker, Tom Baker. Anyhow. And so today we've won the culture wars between D&D &D and science fiction and the movies and comics, nerds rule culture. So do not forget to look at maybe getting someone to take your story or your world for a comic or an amateur production or have it shown for a professional production. Or here's one you may not think of. There are dozens of theater groups out there that would love to adapt your book or short story to a play and show a live performance. You won't get any real money for it, but they're amazing to see, and it will begin to spread the word on you.
And that's what you want to do is get recognized by people who will then take your book. So look beyond the book, look beyond the traditional electronic marketing and look at other markets at other places, other ways the book is evolving. And that's something that a writer should do because the market is moving in those directions. Another thing you can do that you couldn't before is the fact that you can give things away for a limited period all you want. Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan uh, got famous because Tor took a risk on them and gave away 100,000 mini books of the first 90 pages of one of the of the first novel, and it tripled the hardcover sales. Today, you can offer a, bu- a book in a bundle. You can give a book away. If you can get people to notice it and take it, then you may have created a reader, and that's how today you create a reader. That's where it's going to go in the future. More people are going to use hooks and tantalize people and offer them my first book of my series free, etc. Jim Bain told me that 25 years ago, and I laughed, and he was totally right. So the nature of the book is changing. The way you market your book has changed and will continue to evolve. The place your way you distribute your book is changing and evolving dramatically. And this is not to write down the major publishers who will, as I pointed out at the beginning, still be around when I'm predicting their 12th collapse or somebody is. But you have to look at what's new and what the world changing technology we have has done to your books and what it will continue to do as more and more things are easier and cheaper to do including games and game modules, which now come out as PDFs for $2 instead of modules for 17 So talk to a, a small game company who does GURPS modules and say, hey, want to do my book? It may only sell 500 copies, but you may pick up 300 readers through it. So it's evolving. It's changing. It's opening markets. It's opening publicity routes. And we're going to continue to have to look around and do it. So final, what's what's happening in science fiction? Anyone who's complacent will die. Okay, good. That's great. So for someone to be able to get better acquainted with yourself and your writings, I, I listed off at the outset several of the books that you wrote, but anything you'd recommend as a Bill Fawcett primer or something that um, from one uh, fiction and then the other, the nonfiction side? Well, in nonfiction, I would recommend either 100 Mistakes That Change History from Berkeley or Oval Office Oddities from HarperCollins. You find out that our crazy presidents lately are no exception. In fact, John Adams' wife sent a note to Congress saying, please don't listen to my husband. He's insane. (laughs) (laughs) And she was right. Uh, And and, um, on the the fiction side... um, I would pick many things up, but uh, wait about a year and a book called Never Again will be coming out in my GOG series. And it's the first of a new armored combat, hardcore military. So I I try to go at least no more than two chapters without at least one car chase or explosion. Okay, good. good. (laughs) It'll be a good book for that crowd. Okay, good. And to find you online? Mistakesinhistory.com. Okay, great. Social media? Uh, I follow Facebook. I appear on other things. And um, I um, work regularly and work at DragonCon. 
where okay. I'm one of the staff members. So I work a lot with conventions, and I'm one of the people who handles the Dragon Awards. Yes. Anyway, this has been great. And um, I do look forward to being live again this next year and being able to see you in Atlanta at DragonCon. I think that's going to be a long overdue getting back together again. Fingers crossed and the next organizational meeting is Tuesday, but we're going ahead with plans as if we can proceed. We don't know how many will be able to attend, but we're going to proceed if it's at all possible. Yeah, we're we hoping the same thing too. Great. Well, thank you very much, Bill. It's been great speaking with you. And thank you for listening to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. The Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast is based upon the competition created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to have their creative efforts seen and acknowledged. It's available as a national syndication on UPRN Network as well as on all major podcast sites. Again, thank you very much for listening and thank you, Bill. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone who's listened. Go write story and submit it. Good advice. <laughs>